0: Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this time and for the gift of being a Christian community. We ask your blessing upon our study of scripture and upon our conversation that we would learn something new about ourselves and something new about you today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here and we will dive right in. And as I read, just a reminder to pay attention, to take notes, this is the same document I sent in the weekly email. And so you can follow along and even do a little work ahead of time uh, if that seems good to you. So we start in chapter six. Now, during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait at tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread, the number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, I'm going to stop there, do a little bit of teaching, and then we'll go into a time of conversation. So this chapter begins with now during those days. What days? Well, this is just Luke's way of having a transition that these are the days of the early church. And so a little bit of time has passed since what we studied last week, but this is still pretty early on. But We're told that some time has passed and that the movement is growing. The disciples have increased in number. And remember, the last two times we studied Acts, we heard all this wonderful stuff about how all the believers shared everything in common and how no one had any need and everyone got along perfectly. It was this lovely, lovely community Well, as the church grows, that model becomes increasingly unsustainable and things start to happen. And the first thing that happens is that the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, they're complaining because the Hebrews, or those who are native to Jerusalem and might speak Aramaic, are neglecting the Hellenist widows and the daily distribution of food. Now, what this tells us is that the early church practiced the feeding and caring for widows. That's all over scripture, that caring for widows and the poor was a practice of the early church. But what we have for the first time is that the Hebrew widows are considered a little bit more important, a little bit more VIP than the Hellenist or the Greek-speaking widows. And so some of the perfection of the early church that veneer is starting to fade and we actually start to have, you know, what we now would just call discrimination. (laughs) We have discrimination against the Hellenist widows. And the 12 see this and, you know, because they're asked to solve this problem, but because the church has grown, the 12 apostles can't really tend to this dispute. So they say, okay, we have our work to do, Our job is to preach the word of God, and it's not our job to pass out the food. And so we need to delegate this task. And so what they decide to do is to ordain. I mean, that's really what the laying on of hands is, to ordain and to empower seven men not to be apostles. Their task is not the same as the 12, right? There's not the same criteria we saw in chapter one where, They had to be with the apostles and Jesus from the very beginning, but they had to be in good standing. They had to be full of the spirit. They had to be wise and they were given the task of dealing with the material needs of the church. They were the administrators and their job was to make sure that people were being fed and to tend to some other things so that the apostles could focus on prayer and serving the word. And, So this is the first time in the church that we actually have some sort of division of labor. I mean, if you look at how the St. Michael's staff is run, I don't do everything. There are things that I delegate. There are things that the vestry does, the finance commission does, and things that I do. And the way the early church decided to divide up that labor was they said the apostolic task is to pray and to preach. That's what the apostles do. They pray, they preach, and we're going to appoint people to do everything else. And so what they said in verse five pleased the whole community. And so they chose these seven men, Stephen being the one we're going to hear about in a little bit. These were Jewish men. And I think that is evident because Nicholas is a convert. That's what it means to be a proselytite of Antioch. He had converted to the faith. And so um, these were Jews. Um, The others were native Jews. Nicholas was a convert. And they stand before the apostles. The apostles lay hands on them. The laying on of hands is not just a tradition in the New Testament, but it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. For instance, we see in Numbers chapter 8, verse 10, whenever you bring the Levites before the Lord, the Israelites lay their hands on the Levites to designate them to the priestly task. And so this is building on Old Testament tradition. And even today, when a priest or a deacon is ordained, the bishop will lay hands on him or her. And whenever you are confirmed or received into the Episcopal Church, the bishop will lay hands on you. So the laying on of hands remains a big part of our tradition. And so these seven are ordained for ministry. Um, Traditionally, this is where a lot of people say the diaconate comes from, although I think it's really important to name that, the word deacon is never used, that they are not proclaimed to be deacons, that's all extra stuff that we added a little bit later as we reinterpreted this story, Uh, even though the deacon was a role in the early church that is in the New Testament. And then we're just told in verse seven, kind of a summary statement that the word of God continued to spread, that the number of disciples increased, and that many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And the reason that's important is because we recall that last week, Peter and John were preaching to the leadership. Men of Israel, they said, listen to what I have to say, that this preaching had to start in Jerusalem with the Jews and then be expanded and opened up to the Gentiles. And really what we're hearing today is that it's actually working. That yes, we're going to have Gentile converts later on, but that the Jewish people are responding, and so whenever it says that many priests became obedient to the faith, these are Jewish priests, people who now recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, who believe in the resurrection, and these are the priests who will probably be part of the movement later on, and maybe even have some trouble with the Gentiles coming in, right? So, these are Jewish priests who are now joining the way, confessing Jesus as Lord, but they still uphold the law of Moses, they still gather in the temple, they still go through the same sacrifices, but they do so with an understanding that Jesus is the culmination of those things. And so I think that's worth highlighting as well. I'm going to go ahead and stop there and let's see what questions you have.
1: Confused. Are you saying Nicholas was a Gentile?
0: So it says that he was a proselyte, meaning that he was, I understand that to be Uh, converting, he had converted to Judaism. And so he wasn't currently, like, seeking to become uh, a Jew, but he had earlier done so, and that is the designation that was given to him. He would never have been anointed if he uh, were still on that conversion process. Mary, you're on mute, Mary.
2: Thank you. Um, so the seven that were chosen were Jews. Were they, is that a mix of the native Jerusalem Jews or, and the Hellenistic Jews? Because when I was reading this, I was, kept going back as who were they talking to? Did they call the Hebrews who were being discriminating or what? And the reason I asked that then is, so what happened afterwards? Did it solve the problem of the discrimination towards the Hellenistic wives? Because there's nothing else that goes in. And yet, as we read more, and the other um, additional scripture you supply does talk about racial uh, well, racial tensions or stresses.
0: Well, all we have is the text. And so you see what I see. And so whether these were Arabic speaking, Greek speaking, you know, I think that we can infer that Nicholas was a convert at some point to the Jewish faith. Right. But uh, as for whether or not this worked, you know? I mean, we don't really actually have that. We do know, though, that, you know, we read the letters of Paul, and this is not going to come up again in the book of Acts, by the way. There is no revisiting, hey, the Hellenists are being ignored again. I mean, really, the whole idea of the Hellenist widows being ignored is to set up this expansion of leadership, but in reading Paul's letters, we know that there's lots of friction, lots of tension in the church, and that, what the gospel did was bring together people who previously had been separated along lines of gender, class, race, and socioeconomic status. That is undeniable from the evidence we have in the early church. But then you bring all these people together who are used to being apart uh, according to both religious and societal standards, and you have problems, right? You have Um, the rich oppressing the poor, in 1 Corinthians, that comes out. You have tension between Jews and Gentiles. And so I think it would probably be naive to think that it was all perfect after the seven were appointed. I think that the history of the church is the history of friction and tension as we all seek to become, you know, the beloved community of God, that we have moments where we get it right but those moments really also highlight the fact that, typically speaking, we often get it wrong.
1: For clarification, when it says some of the priests believed, we're talking about the Levites in the temple?
0: We are talking, yes, we're talking about the, the priests, according to the law of Moses, who would have served in the temple of Jerusalem. Okay, so we continue on with the arrest of Stephen. Now, I am not going to read Stephen's full speech, although I have it, and we can go to it here in a little bit, and that's mainly for time, but that is in this document, and we can read some of it if we feel like our conversation needs it. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. So just remember, Stephen is one of the seven. And so we're focusing on Stephen. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Sicilia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and spirit with which Stephen spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, this man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So you see it says missing verses. We can return to those missing verses, but for about 53 verses, Stephen retells the story of Israel here. And we can return to those in a little bit, but I'm going to pick up with Verse 54, after about a four minute speech. When they had heard these things, they became enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout, all rushed together against Stephen. Then they dragged him out of the city, and they began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down, and he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. Okay, so just a few things to note. So Stephen now is similar to an apostle in that he is doing wonders and signs, and the word is spreading through him. But in verse 9, we have a different group of Jews who will resist him, resistance to what Luke has now just been calling the way resistance to the way will now extend beyond the Sadducees and the temple authorities, and now Diaspora Jews uh, will resist the message. And specifically, it looks like these are African and Asian Jews from verse 9. And so you have the Diaspora, or those outside of Jerusalem, more influenced by Greek culture, they too are now offering resistance. And so part of what is being set up is that two things are happening simultaneously in the book of Acts. Number one, resistance is expanding. It's not just the temple authorities. It's not just the Sadducees. It's not just the high priestly family, but you actually have diaspora Jews who see this movement and think it has to be stopped. But on the other hand, Even as resistance grows, so do the number of those who follow this way. And so that's kind of one of the tensions that's going to be, um, that we're going to track as the book of Acts unfolds. So they all stand up and they argue with Stephen, who is preaching the word and bearing witness to the resurrection. But we're told in verse 10 that they can't withstand Stephen's wisdom and his spirit. And I think it's important to name that Stephen's spirit is very, very important. It's not just that Stephen has the right words, but that Stephen speaks with a godly spirit. And that doesn't mean that people are going to welcome Stephen. As we see in a moment, they stone Stephen. But Stephen speaks with a spirit of tenderness, a spirit of clarity, a spirit of courage. And as we see when he dies he will offer the same forgiving spirit that Jesus offered from the cross, literally saying the exact same words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. But they bring in some witnesses, and um, and what they hear Stephen say is that he is speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stir everyone up, and so everyone confronts Stephen and brings him before the council, and they bring in false witnesses. Again, this mirrors the false witnesses who accuse Jesus of his crimes. And really what they're suggesting Stephen is doing is blaspheming and saying that, you know, he's going to destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And in a sense, this is ironic because the charge of blasphemy is incorrect. It's incorrect because Jesus is at the right hand of God, and Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. But there is some irony because this whole idea of the customs that Moses handed on to us being changed, that actually seems to be a real threat. And one of the things we'll notice later on in Acts is that circumcision is not required for Gentile converts, and that slowly but surely some of the mosaic requirements of what it means to be God's people are taken away, and faith in Christ and membership in the church through baptism becomes the primary identity marker for this new movement. And so, in a sense, there's their claim that Stephen, um, that, that Jesus will change the customs that Moses handed on to them Turns out to be ironically true. Now we can return to Stephen's speech here in a little bit if you want. It's pretty long, so we can do that time permitting. But essentially, what Stephen does is retell the whole story of um, Israel and uh, to, to show how it culminates with Jesus's death and resurrection. And they hear this in verse fifty-four, and they are enraged and they ground their teeth. They're really, really angry and. You know, when they're really, really angry at that moment, Stephen says the one thing they can't hear, which is that he sees the glory of God and that Jesus, the one whom they are resisting, is now standing at the right hand of God and Stephen sees Jesus. This brings to mind um, what Jesus um, said in the Gospel of Luke. Um, you shall see the Son of Man um, standing at the right hand of God. Um, That's one of the um, um, quotes that Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, and this is the fulfillment of that. And so the moment that Stephen says this, they begin to stone him. And uh, just a reminder, um, Romans put people to death by crucifying them. The Jews put people to death by stoning them. And so this is really, uh, it's a lynching. It's an unauthorized killing. It is the Jewish people um, cleaning up one of their own perceived messes. And so they stoned Stephen and, you know, probably the Romans knew that the Jews did this from time to time and let them get away with it. But this was not really a sanctioned killing according to the laws of Rome um, that Stephen was stoned. He was stoned kind of outside the courts of official justice unlike Jesus who was crucified by Rome. And as they do this, we then get a figure by the name of Saul uh, who is overseeing this killing and who approves of this killing. And we're going to hear a lot more about Saul in the chapters to come. But I'm going to go ahead and stop there and see what your take is on this this little bit of Acts and, and what it evokes for you. The, a question about Saul and the laying down of the coats. Uh-huh, the cloaks, coats. Uh-huh. What is the significance of, of that? I mean, I can see Jesus and, you know, they cast lots and that sort of thing, but I don't think that's what it's referring to. So what does it mean to symbolically lay your coat at someone's feet? Why did they lay their cloaks at, uh, at Saul's feet? Does it say somewhere I'm trying to think about Didn't Jesus they say that in this, they laid kid. their
2: coats at the feet of a young man named Saul.
0: Yeah, it does. But um l- let me let me read. Uh, it says um I'm looking. I mean, this is still Saul not Paul. I mean, it It does say that they laid their coats at Saul's feet. Um somewhere does it say it in this these, these yes, verse 58.
2: 58 <laughs> B. Second part of 58. Oh, yeah,
0: yes. Right. Okay. So um, does it say in the gospel or am I making this up? When Jesus enters Jerusalem for Palm Sunday with shouts of Hosanna, I know that they spread palm branches.
1: Oh, um, do course. they
0: also lay down their coats, or am I making that up?
1: No, that sounds familiar, but I don't I can't tell you. Yes, you're you're right.
0: Um, it well All that to say, it's somewhere in scripture, to lay down one's coat at someone's feet, it's a pledge of loyalty. It's a symbolic pledge of loyalty, basically what they're doing. So it's kind of like, so there's a lot of irony in the book of Acts. So Stephen has just been ordained with the laying on of hands. Think of the laying down of the coats as like this twisted ordination. (laughs) This is like a twisted ordination where Saul is ordained to resist this movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the laying down of coats at Saul's feet, it is a pledge of loyalty and people are saying, you're a young zealot, you lead us in stamping out this movement.
1: Reading this yesterday, I, I was struck by the false witnesses that they like paid people to lie and and they, the liars did so willingly and how hard it is, to fight lies, if people tell lies about you, it's really hard to combat that. And and, uh, I don't know, I was just thinking about um, the 10 commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness and here are these presumably devout Jews taking money to lie
0: It's
2: not just here. It's the same thing that happened to Peter. That was false witnessing against the truth and both responded by sharing the good news.
0: And the same thing that happened to Jesus. Jesus, rarely does it say in the old Testament, you know, but there are certain things that God hates, you know, it says that God hates uh, when people bear false witness. And so whenever we use our words as a means of injustice Um, which was a common practice uh, and still is a common practice, whether it's overt lying or not telling the whole truth or shading the story a bit in order to twist kind of how people perceive things. There's a reason in scripture, Jesus has a lot to say about our words. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't swear by the temple. Don't swear by the heavens. Be the sort of person who speaks words that we trust are trustworthy and so uh yeah so you have false witnesses and they just they're out to get them they want Stephen dead and they're going to do what it takes to kill him and that's kind of the feel of what's happening here
1: can we look a little bit at at steven's speech so, to find out why they took such drastic measures
0: oh. absolutely yeah absolutely so um Let me read portions of it, okay? So then the high priest asked him, are these things so? And Stephen replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The glory of God appeared to our ancestor Abraham. Okay, so he's he's telling the story about Abraham. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him to Egypt. Then he talks about Joseph for a bit. I mean, this goes on and on. Um, and so Jacob went down to Egypt. He himself died there as well as our ancestors, and their bodies were brought back to Shechem and laid at the tomb, and Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. But as the time drew near for the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, our people in Egypt increased and multiplied until another king who had not known Joseph ruled over Egypt. Okay. So he's just told the whole story of Genesis. Now he's telling the story of Exodus. Uh, and we get, um, skipping down a little bit, when Moses was 40 years old it came to his heart to visit his relatives, when he saw one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his kinfolk would understand that God through him was rescuing them, but they did not understand And then he goes on and on about how Moses had to flee to the land of Midian, and he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. And then he tells the story of how God sent Moses to Egypt to rescue the oppressed Israelites. It was this Moses whom they rejected when they said, who made you a ruler and a judge? This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet for you from your own people as he raised me up. Okay, so that's an important verse. I'm going to highlight it. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet for you from your own people as he raised me up. He then tells the story of Aaron having the people make golden calves in the wilderness and how, uh, God handed them over to idolatry, uh, and all of that and how they were sent off to Babylon. I mean, this is a long, long speech. Um, um, then we get to Joshua and David, and then this is how the speech ends. Yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, but what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Okay, this is it right here. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. So basically, what Stephen does is retell the whole story of God calling Abraham all the way from Joseph uh, to people's you know, flight to Egypt to the Exodus to the raising up of King David to all that the prophets have been talking about. And then he shifts and he says, um, you've never listened to the prophets. Um and basically you killed the righteous one. So that's kinda of what he did. And I don't is know it, if that's helpful or not. Go ahead, Mary.
2: Is it that summary that really just irked him? <laughs> because the rest of it's repeating and to me it reminded me of what you um remind us about acts is um, a way of not being a new religion but continuing to show the connection and to me that's what i felt like he was doing is talking about the faith and and what had happened and everything sort of kind of makes sense and they all would understand that but then he turns right around and just throws this back at him well in with his angel face he throws it back at him
0: yeah
2: yeah but um, is this is this what really got them, then?
0: Because well, I, I think it, what really got them was you stiff-necked people, yeah. uncircumcised and hardened ears. You're always opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. So, what's he talking about? I mean, he's talking about how the people made the golden calf in the wilderness. How um, I, I mean, he, he's told the story of them being exiled in Babylon. Um, but I, I think it's also important to name that. You know, who's giving this speech? Two people are giving this speech. Number one, Stephen is giving this speech to the people who are about to stone him. And he's telling the story of the people of Israel and how it culminates in Jesus. But on the other hand, Luke is giving this speech to the Roman authorities. And so if you were to read this speech that Stephen gives, um, and you are a, a Roman authority suspicious of this new movement, the impact of the speech is to basically say what's happening here is the culmination of the book of Genesis, of the book of Exodus, of the story of David, of all the prophets. Uh, And so that's like the twin agenda happening with Stephen's speech. It's Stephen speaking to the mob, but it's also Luke speaking to the culture to frame this new movement as a continuation of the story that began with Abraham because part of what he wants to do is to make this new movement credible to the outside world so that they're not suspicious of it. All right, we don't have too much left in this chapter. Uh, It says, And Saul approved of their killing him. That day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women whom he committed to prison. Okay, so, um, well, what's happening? Well, um, Uh, A severe persecution is now beginning, and one of the things that we're going to just see is this theme of both resistance to the movement growing and the church growing at the same time. So um, this is where the persecution of the church really begins. Um, The moment that Stephen is killed, I think that gives um, uh, other people permission to do something similar, especially given the fact that they really approve of this killing. And the one to lead this persecution is going to be Saul. And so, um, but this does have the impact of scattering the apostles throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Notice how this is actually good for the mission of the church. What happens when they're scattered? Do they hide out in people's houses and wait for the persecution to die down? No, they end up preaching. And so the impact, of the persecution is only to scatter the church so that they continue to preach the word and the movement grows. If you're ever wondering how did this movement even get outside of Jerusalem, one answer in part is that people left because of persecution, but they continued to preach the word as they traveled to get away from the persecution. So there's a little bit of an irony here that the very effort to stop this movement is the actual fuel that ignites uh, the church scattering and spreading the word outside of Jerusalem. Um, So devout men bury Stephen and they grieve his death. But then we're told Saul was ravaging the church by entering people's homes. And so there's a real active persecution happening. I mean, that verb ravage is really violent. And he's not going to synagogues where people are speaking you know, that this has a different flavor. He's actually going into people's homes and dragging people away. I mean, dragging men and women. And so you have this this image of Saul entering (coughs) people's homes and dragging women away in front of their children. I mean, it's a very violent, violent scene. And so whenever you read Paul's letters, this is who he was prior to his conversion. He wasn't just a Bible scholar. He was a persecutor of the church. And so I have here Paul in his own words. I mean, just consider some of Paul's own testimony. In 1 Corinthians fifteen nine, he says, For I am the least of all the apostles, and I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Philippians three, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. And then first Timothy one fifteen, here is a trustworthy saying and full of all to be or and worthy of all to be accepted, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, you know why does Paul think that he is the worst? Is it because he has you know a false sense of humility no it's because he used to go to people's homes, beat down the door, and drive you know drag away the mom and throw her in prison for being a christian you know so so Paul has um, a keen awareness that his sin was very, very bad, and so if you read paul's theology of forgiveness and the cross and his conversion experience, a lot of his writing on grace comes from the fact that he understands himself to be among those who did the worst thing someone can do, which is persecute the church.
2: To me, all of this was more example but really easy to understand example of the paradox of what happens in the Bible, the good that comes from the bad. Um, I mean, I... I've loved the Joseph stories because I always feel like that's, he's the symbol of uh, God using um, situations to make them good. But this is this is all in your face. Here's something bad, but it turns to the good. That they're resisting and trying to push down the church, and it, yet it's growing. That Saul was horrible and ravaging and really hurting people, yet he became one of the greatest apostles, I mean, and to share the good news with us. and. I don't know what it does for me, but it's just like, wow, it's this little bit of scripture puts it blatantly out there, the bad, the good.
0: So (laughs) one of the things being highlighted is God's capacity to redeem Mm -hmm. the most hopeless situation. So what is the most hopeless situation for the church? It's persecution. What does it lead to? It leads to growth and to the movement spreading across the Roman empire. What's the most hopeless situation for a person? it's to persecute the church and to discriminate against the people whom God loves and whom God has chosen. What happens to that person? He becomes the chief apostle. Now, does it always happen that neatly in our experience? No, it doesn't, but it is meant to be seen as a sign of hope and as God's incredible power to bring good out of unspeakable evil. And as long as we don't turn that into a, you know, let's not look at evil and call it evil and we can kind of maintain the tension, then I think that we can be in good shape reading it that way.
1: Just a small comparison, but I was thinking of examples of how hard it is when change rears its ugly head in the church to know whether to go with the new or defend the old. And this came about uh, with the ordination of women. This, this was a huge problem for the church and and cost many congregations their affiliation with, with the um, Episcopal Church in the United States. And so, you know, um, presumably everyone was praying to the same God, asking for direction and getting very different answers as to whether to defend the old or go with the new. So I was thinking about these people at this time. I mean, this, this was, this was tough to really change your outlook from everything you've ever known.
0: It's really well said, Jackie, but I want you to, I want you to hold that as you read this, because that's, I mean, that is alive today. You know, it's not every year that we get like a big Change in the Episcopal Church, like the ordination of women, which you know now let's see that happened in the late seventies. So that's forty plus years since um, the ordination of women. It's no longer uh, a big deal or anything like that um, in terms of like our conscious experience of being the church. But at the time, it was a huge deal. It's not every year we get one of those things to deliberate and to debate on. But we have plenty more in our lifetime, right? That's always what's happening is that something about our past is giving way and the future is emerging. And we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be faithful um, as we step forward without, you know, to to keep the baby, but to throw out the bathwater, right? That's a really hard (laughs) question. There's a great quote on the difference between convention and tradition. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Convention is the dead faith of the living, right? And so the question is uh, we can never get rid of tradition, but what is convention, right? What's tradition and what's convention? What is the unchangeable word of God that no matter what circumstance uh, happens, we must hold on to? And what's the outside dressing that we can change if the spirit tells us we need to change it? And those are the questions that Acts leans into in a really, really hard way, mainly around the issue of Gentile inclusion. Diane?
1: Well, they'd had this very idealistic society, but it seems that as more and more people joined the society, it became harder and harder to keep it as an idealistic society. So I guess that speaks to human nature as the numbers of humans increase, it's harder and harder to keep it the way it's supposedly supposed to be.
0: That's a really good point. And that that is our experience, right? As the world explodes. I mean, how many denominations are there within Christianity now? Like 36,000 or something like that, right? That um, human beings are always breaking relationship over very small things that feel very big. And the smaller the community, the easier it is to live into values and to hold people accountable to values. I often joke that when Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst, that whenever he said that, that wasn't a minimum, but a maximum. (laughs) That if like, you know, two or three are gathered, you can have like a really cohesive Christian community, but much more than that, things are going to spin out of control. And obviously I'm joking a little bit. Jesus is certainly present in large gatherings, but it does speak to the reality that as community grows, so do personality conflicts. So does the complexity of problems that churches face. So does the potential for things to go wrong. I mean, you know, the more people, uh, the more complexity and potential problems we face. And that is just true about relationship and how God created us.
1: Right down the road, you can walk yeah. from one to the other, or you can see one from... One was a Czech church and one was a German Catholic church. So the Czechs and the Germans decided they couldn't worship together.
0: Well, this is a good, uh, I want to close with a few thoughts on this because it's a real issue, right? I mean, the, the lack of unity in the church is a scandal to many. It's a scandal to the world. You know, they see our fighting, they see our disagreement. And so I think, you know, Jesus prayed the night before he died, Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one. And as we reflect on our lack of unity, I think we can't really fix that. But I do think there are two things we can say about it, or really two things I want to say about it. Um, number one is that in his letter to the Philippians, Paul says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And um, and I think that we often misread that. A lot of Christians split over ideological issues, over theological issues, and you know, certainly orthodoxy is important. And we do have to take some sort of stand to say, these are the bounds in which our faith is lived out. I mean, I think that that is an important aspect of, of defining yourself as a people. But, um, you know, splitting over the ordination of women and things like that, um, that's not what it means to have the mind of Christ. When the Bible speaks of having the mind of Christ, it has nothing to do with agreeing on how we see societal or political issues, but rather the mind of Christ is always used in reference to the self-emptying of Christ who, though in the form of God, uh, took on the form of a slave and died on a cross. And so whenever it says, have the mind of Christ, what that really means is have a mind that is willing to empty itself of its judgments and prejudices and preferences in order to be fully attentive to the other. And I think if we all do that, that leads to a more cohesive and a much stronger Christian community. The other thing I'll just say, tied to that, that's called humility, by the way. That's what the virtue of humility is. Uh, Another note is that the words humanity, humility, and humor all share the same etymological root. And so I think, you know, whenever you find yourself getting down on divisions and and all of that, I think just having a sense of humor about it uh, might not solve it, but I think it's really important. I think if we get too serious and too worked up, uh, we get out of touch with our humor, our humility, and our humanity. And I think those three things are all connected. So I'll just go ahead and leave you with those thoughts. I don't know if they help, but, you know, I got to leave on something.